Throughout my adult life, my focus has been on making the world a more beautiful place. Initially, I pursued this goal as a hairstylist, working on the external appearance of individuals to make them feel more beautiful. However, I wanted more, so I began to shift my focus to helping people make better choices and achieve greater beauty from within. As a transformational life coach, I specialize in helping you identify and change the limiting beliefs that may be holding you back. Join me each week as we discuss, interview, teach, and explore the fundamental principles of healthy relationships. Welcome to Conscious Conversations with Louisa. In today's episode of Conscious Conversations with Louisa, I'm speaking with David Donnelly. <laughs> and introduce one of my most favorite human beings on the planet. And I have to say, I'm not going to play favorites, but I might play favorites. I seriously love this man. And mostly because he's not just one of the most talented human beings on the planet, but he's genuinely one of the kindest, most loving, beautiful souls I've ever met. And I'm honored knowing you, David Donnelly. Yeah, and you know I, how difficult that is for me to hear. Oh, <laughs> I truly, truly, absolutely love who you Thank are. Thank you. I love, I love who you are too. Thank you. Really. So well, we're all part of the fan club, so it's a very safe place to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I got a little heads up on you guys. So. <laughs> you know what's fun? As he's like, you know how hard that was for me to hear. I'm like, do you know how much I love hearing that? I'm like, <laughs> yes, please love on me. <laughs> so. Mr. Grammy winner, two-time Latin Grammys, music executive, producer, um, owner and president at DNA Mastering. You have worked with like some of the most talented artists out there. I'm, I would take my time to go through all of them, but you've in 50 years, because you're not even that old, you have worked with everyone pretty much. So I want to have an opportunity to get to know Mr. David Donnelly, and how did this all begin for you? I I know part of your story, but I would love to share you with the world. Mm. Well, and and what, ex what exactly is mastering? Mastering is the final stage in the recording process. So if you if you were to go into studio, record a song, um, and then the song gets mixed, right? Put, put everything, all the instruments in the proper place. Then that final mix is sent to me. I listen to it. I hear deficiencies and everything. And I, I add the final shine before you hear it on the radio or stream it or buy it or whatever. So I make the final audio adjustments to make it sound as, as it can sound. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of times it's, it's you're starting out with something that's really inferior. And then we I have to resort to what I call, for lack of a better term, I'm sorry, turd polishing. So <laughs> and, and is it. that what is that what they strike all the uh, the iterations off of the master? Is that what that is? The master? I, you're I, the master I, of the I, mastering? Well, and, you know, nowadays there's not so much of that anymore, but I do create the, the master file that everything is manufactured from, everything is streamed from. So that that's what I do. So I, I, I make the final audio adjustment, make it sound as good as I can. Uh, and, and, you know, when people come to me because, you know, the producers are like um, 
they're they're real they're really stuck in genres, right? So a heavy metal producer will produce heavy metal, and a you know country guys known for country. But for me, my day changes every day. Sometimes three times a day. I do I do about 60, 70 movie scores and soundtracks a year. That, you know, hence Lyle Workman, right? I do uh, uh, metal records, gospel country. I just did uh, 25 Loretta Lynn albums for Universal. Uh, I did a brand new Kenny Rogers record that nobody ever heard before that was in the vault that never got released. Um, but then I'll do uh, gospel or, you know, uh, opera, jazz. I do a ton of jazz records. So my day... I, I have to, I don't, you know, people call me and say, Hey, what'd you think of that song? I don't know what to tell you because I don't, if I would go crazy, if I actually listened to the material, I listen through the material. I'm just listening to the audio and trying to make it sound as good as it can. I don't listen creatively to somebody's project when I'm working. I'll enjoy that later on, but for me to, to, to uh, approach it any other way, I would hate my job. If I had to listen to, you know, I get work, from all over the world. I get guys from Russia selling, sending me their, their music to work on or Spain, South America, Mexico, you know, and of course here. And so if you had to listen to the creative content and the writing and the performance and all that stuff, you'd, you'd really want to go do something else for a living. So, you know, I have to listen through the music and try to, you know, listen to the balances and make it sound as good as I possibly can. And the other thing that I'm doing, I only work in stereo, right? I'm, the thing's already mixed. It's already blended. So I have to be very careful of how I um, approach things because everything that I do affects something else. But if you were in the recording studio and you were mixing your record and you went home and listened to it and you go, gosh, I wish the bass was up. Well, you can go back tomorrow and push the bass up. With me, I have to try to do it with a frequency and that's going to affect everything else that has low frequency in it. So you have to be really careful. And so that's that's basically the magic behind it, which is very straight. You know, if you, if you talk to producers and mix engineers, they don't want to know anything about mastering. They go, you guys are weird. You know, <laughs> I don't know how you make things sound like you do, but keep doing it. So there's a little mystery behind it. Um, and uh, again, I think, for me, the reason that I've been successful as it, at it, because I, I really try to listen to the sonic landscape of it and make it sound as good as it can sound. That's so interesting. Right. It's pretty interesting. Are you the one who ultimately, with the new Sonos technology, like spatial audio, are you the one who will decide where the sound goes and how it moves and all of that? Or is that something that you work with the artist with? No, no, well, well, that, that, that happens too. But see, I actually own a Dolby Atmos studio, which is a spatial audio studio, but I have three amazing engineers that that's all they do. And so they'll usually do their first pass, second pass, make a few adjustments, and then we'll have the artists come into the studio and listen and we'll make final tweaks. I'll say, hey, can you bring that piece up there or this thing? So yeah, but I stay away from that. It's 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 <laughs> keep me out of the keep me out of the mix room. Whose iPhone is that? Do you guys see why I wanted him on so badly now? Because he you know, you start talking, David, and you just happen to be a wealth of information in this area. And I find it to be so fascinating. I love the fact that it's it's so like breathing for you. Well, it, it's, it, it is, and it's second nature. My, to give you a little bit of a background, 
um, <clears throat> on myself. You know, I grew up in LA, born and raised. My dad was, my dad, this, this is a great story. I won't take too much of your time, but um, my dad came out, my dad was from, from uh, um, Wisconsin. And when he was a young man, um, he was raised in an orphanage and he was working at a, you know, a, at a diner or something. And his, his best friend and his friend's father came in and my dad was a cook and he's in the kitchen cooking. And, uh, they said, Hey, Chuck, we're, we're, we came in to say goodbye to you. And my dad's like, well, where are you going? And they go, well, we're, we're going to California. My dad's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What, what the hell, what do you, how, where are you going to stay? And they said, we're going to sleep in the orange groves till we figure it out. So I never knew this story. My ex-wife were at my parents' house and I'm watching a Laker game, you know, not paying attention. And, and out of the, you know, by, I don't know what caught me, but she said, Hey, Chuck, how did you ever get to California? My dad never told us this. He never, <laughs> he would have, if she wouldn't have asked him, he would have died with this secret. So the, here's the cool part. The guy that he, my dad took his apron off with food cooking and got in the Model T with them. It took him five days to get across the country. And that guy that he came out here with was a survivor on the Titanic. Oh, wow. I mean, why wouldn't my dad say anything? You know, <laughs> he's just, I mean, that's, that's like a story of the ages, right? No, I came oh. out of the guy who you know, floating around on an iceberg for five days. <laughs> well, I've now known you, and I have never heard this story. So thank God I got here, so the rest of the world gets to hear your dad's story. So it was so, amazing. So, so he so he comes out here with these other two uh, father and son, and then he does what when he's here? Is he already? I mean, is your dad? Were you no. alive when that happened? Were you? Uh so he he tried to join the service and he had broken his foot. He was raised. All my family had farms back in Wisconsin. You know, when he was young, he had a horse step on his foot and crush it. So my dad always had like you couldn't even touch his toe without him screaming. He was very sensitive. So he wasn't able to make it in the service. And they, they back then they had the Conservation Corps. So they, they let him in that. And then he started working in the shipyards during World War Two, building ships. And once the war was over, he was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he was in he was in Hollywood and he applied for a job with this man. And this is another interesting story. His boss, the guy that he ended up working for, um, his name was Al Ellsworth. This guy started out um, his whole career in electronics and things like that, uh, working for a guy named Herb Bell. And he worked in Herb Bell's garage creating transistors and that's Packard Bell. So my dad's boss worked for Herb Bell before Packard Bell ever existed. I mean, wow. it, stories. And I, I have to pull this out of my, my old man. He's like, I'll <laughs> see stories, you know, cause it, he had a wealth of these incredible stories, but he just, because he, you know, was in an orphanage and he, he and his, his sister were raised in an orphanage, but all the other siblings got to stay and live with, other relatives, but they all had huge Irish families and they just couldn't take them. So my dad had to watch from afar all of his siblings get raised by other family members while he and his sister were raised in an orphanage, which closed him down. He didn't talk about anything. It was quiet. You know, you never knew what he was thinking. He's the kind of guy, you know, you knew he, he you knew he loved you, but he never told you he loved you. Right. So the, which is the secret to him not telling us all these things. He just grew up as a quiet guy. 
right? But why wouldn't you tell your kids these things? They're like they're like monumental, you know. So I guess that's kind of um, uh, that part of the story. Then after World War II, he and this guy uh, Al Ellsworth, who worked for Herb Bell, started their the first one of the first record pressing factories in Hollywood in Los Angeles with only one record press. They're pressing one record at a time on one press and they expanded it to two. And then pretty soon it got a little bigger and they actually funded uh, Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss were, they made, Herb Alpert made a a, a record, his very first record. Um, I can't remember the name of it. You know, you know who he is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they they uh, started AM Records in in uh, Jerry Moss's garage. My dad gave him the credit to. Press- he just died, Jerry Moss. Yeah, you did. know that last week. So that's a fast. Uh, that's an amazing uh, <clears throat> chain of events. So how did you get into the? Well, that kind of into you know typical LA kid. You know all my friends were surfing every day and stuff, and one. Summer, my dad's like, you're not going to surf anymore. You need a job. And he and I said, <laughs> the record factory. So, um, and then I got into learning all aspects of record manufacturing. And then, unfortunately, my dad and I got known uh, in the industry as this father-son team that builds record plants and runs them. And so we started getting hired by record companies like Records. I got to you know, go into Indiana, mow down a cornfield, build a record factory in the heyday of vinyl. And I hated it. You know, it was like, it's a factory. It didn't matter to me whether it was, all my friends were like, oh, <laughs> in a factory, it's 120 in the summer inside. It's horrible. <laughs> like practically lost my limbs working in there because it was so dangerous. And uh, and so I was I was able to get this one. We built the 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 largest pressing plant uh, um, west of the Mississippi in Sun Valley, California, right at the height of the of the vinyl business, but just before it crashed. And so we actually built the, the, the we had probably $10 million for the presses that never even got energized, never fired up because the music business started going down again. And so um, anyway, I got that company to send me and pay for my education as a recording engineer because they wanted me to be the QC guy, the audio guy. And so um, I would, um, once I completed school, I really wanted to make records. And I still was working at this vinyl factory. And part of my job was if uh, the new Van Halen record was coming out, we would do what we call test pressings, which are similar to like proofs of, you know, for photographers, prints, and things like that. So we'd make four or five copies of what the production run was going to be. And I would have to take it to Warner Brothers and go to the A&R department and give them, you know, give them a copy of the record to approve so we can go into manufacturing. But I would always have a band that I had like found at some club that I produced. And I'd always hand a cassette over and said, you know, when you get a chance to check this out. Right. And one day I'm working at a, at a record factory in, in uh, that I was running in, in Santa Monica and uh, I got a call from Warner Brothers and they said, we need somebody exactly like you that in, in our A&R department that knows manufacturing that can deal with all the technical issues with our artists because they're driving us nuts. And that was my that was my start at the label was just happenstance, you know. So, and who was like, running Warner Brothers then? Mo Austin. Who was running? It was Mo, Mo Austin. 
And how old were you at this time, David? I'm sorry? How old were you, how old were you at this time? Oi. Uh... <laughs> it was like Oy. yesterday, I remember it. <laughs> Oi. Was it in the 60s? Was it in the 70s? It's in my, it, in the I, 80s? It was, it was in er, the early 80s. Yeah, early 80s. So... I think I was 28 or 29. Love it. Something like that. Or was I 38 or 39? I don't know. I can't do the math. <laughs> <laughs> My, wow. I was 30s, but early. 30s. And it all started on, on that farm in Minnesota where your father was and said, I'm going to California. Well, it started with my with me being a you know typical L.A. guy that all I wanted to do. <laughs> so one of my favorite things that you shared was that you were 10 and you had taken apart your mom's car. And when they came home, the engine and everything was outside of the car that you had just decided to go <laughs> So, well, you know, so how many kids do that? I don't know. I don't know. You know, we, we talk about, you know, how uh, how times have changed and all the, you know, homelessness and crime and all this stuff. Can you imagine my parents let me have a Los Angeles Herald Examiner paper route? where I was like nine or 10 years old, standing on the freeway off-ramp to the 405 until it was dark selling papers for a quarter. You know, today, <laughs> shot, whatever, right? So it was there was so much freedom back then to do that kind of stuff. So, you know, like most kids, I had, you know, little, little jobs like that until I became, you know, old enough to actually get a real job. Well, one of the things that I, I always find common denominators, and it feels like everyone I've interviewed has had a paper route job, but you were a little different with the way and creativity of your paper route. You somehow enrolled your mom in, in participating. So I, I enrolled my mom. <laughs> where, you know, uh, uh, th that five <laughs> morning for, to, to deliver the, uh, the Sunday paper, I was like, I wasn't having that. So my mom would feel so like, oh, my God, you're going to get fired that she'd get up at, at <laughs> would fold them all. So all I had to do then, then all I had to do is ride my bike around. And then I stopped doing that. And my mom would drive me and I'd sit in the trunk of the car. Just... <laughs> so what what is the most uh, so far in your career? What is the most? Let's call it personally special moment you've experienced. Oh, and I love this part, part two, what is the most scandalous story you can share that you feel that you can share? Oh, 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 oh David Donnelly. <laughs> I've seen some stuff that you just <laughs> take a look at the bands that he's worked with. And it oh all, my God. It always centers around a band. But, um, you know, I I think my my years at at Geffen Records, there there were so many incredible times and so many incredible things that happened. Um, that that I think was one of the most defining moments um, in my um, in my working life were, were those years working for Geffen because he was an amazing man. Um, he would I don't know if you did did you guys ever see the the um, documentary on him that's on Netflix. If, if you haven't, you should watch it because it's it's really fascinating. Um, but it, his his management style was no style. Like if I don't, if nobody complains about you, I'm good. I'm not. He doesn't micromanage. Like if I want to go to Europe, 
I just go to Europe. I wouldn't ask anybody's permission. I just go, I'm going to go see some studios. Okay, great. Bye. See you later. Have fun. And, and it was that way for everybody that worked at the company. We had, he, he just didn't want any kind of um, competition. So when, when I don't want to make this about the David Geffen story, but when um, Geffen decided to get back in the business, Mo Austin, you know, approached him and they, they created this joint venture Geffen records where it was a 50, 50, uh, venture and 50 50 in the profits and losses warner brothers i was at warner's at the time we provided all the backroom services for geffen geffen was just a creative a r outpost they had three creatives there signing bands we did their promotion we did their marketing we did everything accounting the whole ball of wax and one day david got pissed off because a white snake record came out at the same time that a deal record came out and so who do you think is going to get the attention the warner the Warner Act, right? So David just very quietly decided, I'm going to create my own record company. And I got recruited to go over and start all these different departments. So um, anyway, with that being said, it was incredibly um, amazing. I traveled the world, you know, I worked with the greatest bands in the world. We were, we were the, um, at that time, we were the talk of the industry because here this little company with 60 employees, we did $700 million one year when the biggest company in the music business, which was Warner's at the time, had 450, 500 employees. We had 60. They did 400 million and we did 700 million with 60 employees. And it was like David went, eh, eh, you know, and then MCA approached him to buy the company and all of a sudden he was billionaire. And that was that. But it was it was an amazing time. It was this um you know, you had there's a lot of responsibility you had when somebody gives you that kind of freedom. And and the acts that Geffen had on his label, I mean, that was incredible. And the management company that he had was just incredible. Company, you know, he had some groundbreaking films. I mean, uh, first uh, soundtrack I worked on um, was was Beetlejuice, which was an amazing movie. He R- Risky Business. After Risky Business came out, he bought that entire two city blocks of, of Sunset Boulevard from risky business money. Right. So, um, it was, uh, it was just a fantastic time to work and, and the freedom when you have creative freedom like that, um, to be able to, you know, it was like, I got to be an entrepreneur of my own company, but I was getting paid by somebody else. Right. So I, I started departments. I made things happen, did my own hiring. Uh, and then they, I get a call like it'd be a Friday night, which it was really difficult on my relationships, by the way, because it, I'd be, you know, Friday night we have plans. I get in the driveway and I get a call. You got to go to New York and finish this Aerosmith record. It's got to get out, you know, so <laughs> I'm booking a flight and hopping a plane. I didn't know I was going to be doing. And so um, that was kind of a normal thing that happened all the time. So but, I I would love to take you to the like, your first Grammy nomination. Okay. What did that feel like? Um, it was, it was kind of strange because the project that, um, that I did, uh, was with, um, Alan Parsons. It was on Alan's, uh, selling record, which was eye in the sky. And Sony had hired us. It was the 30th anniversary. So they wanted to do this big box set and include something special. So we remixed the whole album and surround sound. And the album came out, came out like, I still don't know when the album came out. I know that I had worked on it two years prior. So I didn't, 
it was like it came out of left field. I was and I, I didn't realize that Sony waited another six or eight months to release it, which made it into the qualifying year for the year that we got nominated. So I used to um, be petrified to talk in front of people. I, I had to every year address the board um, at Geffen on, you know, what's, uh, they, they counted on me for technology and all these other things. So I'd have to do like a, a paper on, you know, where music manufacturing is going, where uh, the next uh, audio format is and whatever, you know, all these facts and figures and stuff. And I would always like run, run to the bathroom with stomach cramps before I <laughs> because there, it was a, it was a tough audience, man. These exact oh boy. <laughs> really tough on you. So um, anyway, I've kind of forgot where I was going with that. So, oh, so anyway, so um, I'm actually working at Alan's house up in Santa Barbara the morning the nominations came out. So I drove up there from, from LA and um, I walk in, he goes, oh man, congratulations, we're nominated. And I said, oh, I know it's awesome. And then he's like, I got bad news. I go, why, what's that? He goes, I'm going to be on tour. You got to go by yourself. I'm like, oh, <laughs> my stomach music went, like, oh, God, no. <laughs> what if we, that's terrible. <laughs> so anyway, uh, a good friend of his who now is my business partner, um, uh, he uh, said, don't worry about it. I'll I'll pick you up because he worked for the Academy. He goes, I'll pick you up. I'll take you to the Grammys. You won't have to worry about a thing. You just make your, do your speech and whatever. So I wrote this big speech out and everybody before me, is getting called off, you know, by the band, like eh, the band's playing, they're still talking, thanking their dog and their, you know, dead grandma. <laughs> and so I started feeling like, oh shit, man, this speech I have is like three pages long. And uh, <laughs> just literally the, the, you can, you can see what the categories are coming up. I'm up next. And I just took that thing and I just watered it up and I, I chucked it. And all of a sudden they called us and I just went up there and all of a sudden, all my fear went away. And the Grammy goes to David Donnelly, PJ Olson, and Alan Parsons. What's up? Uh, Alan Parsons and PJ Olson are on tour right now, so that's why they're not here. And uh, this is Alan's 13th nomination and first win for this guy. This guy who started his career working with the Beatles. Huh? So thank you to the Academy and thank you to Legacy and good night. I, I made it all about Alan, who'd never he'd been nominated 13 times and never won a Grammy. And um, and uh, it was it was an amazing night. It was amazing. I just I, I, a sense of calmness came over me and I don't know where that came from, but it completely broke my inhibitions about about speaking. I love that. I truly, truly love that because especially because you really embodied the work and created the, you know, with including everyone as opposed to, oh, it's all about me up there. And that's truly where the love of people feeling seen and heard and experienced. You know, what's Louisa is that it wasn't until like the next day and I, I watched it on, 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 uh, online that I went, Holy shit! I I never even said who I was. <laughs> I tried to make it all about Alan, and you know, I said, 
you know, this guy started his career working with the Beatles and, you know, nominated 13 times, blah, blah, blah. And he's on tour. Thank you very much. Good night. Boom. And I walked out there. You know, I'm sure everybody's like, well, who the hell was that guy? <laughs> <laughs> I needed to make it all about him. And here's the cool part. That guy that brought me to the Academy, uh, to the to the awards, he FaceTimed Alan when when we won. And I, I didn't know. So he was in the middle of the Caribbean um, and uh, got to watch the whole thing on on uh, on iPhone. And so that he was so cool. Awesome. I made it all about him. So you won another Grammy this year. This year and last year. For mm-hmm. So I, I love how humble you are. I truly do. And it's just fascinating to be somebody who I've seen the records on your in, in your house. And and the fact that you're so extraordinary and, and you're so normal. Like it fascinates me. Because I think <laughs> I'm, what I'm do you mean about- normal. No, but I'm in the valley and people have this way of being right. Like, and and the sentence I use is, do you know who I think I am? And, and, and they're walking around with extra specialness when I love how extra special you are and, and really genuinely a beautiful human. Hmm, But I love the fact that I got to be at the Grammys with you this year and we had so much fun. We did have fun. (laughs) We did. So what was it like working on that this year and, and being nominated and winning? Um, it was, um, you know, cause I don't work on the show outside of making sure for, for those of you who don't know, um, the gentleman who I had said had brought me to the, the Grammys the year that, that we won with Alan, um, has a company called AFM advertising for media. And he's actually the, the uh, publisher of the official Grammy program book. And so he thought it wise after, because of all the people I've known, all the bands I work with and all the record executives I know that maybe I would want to come to work for the company as a little side hustle. Cause it's only last, you know, six weeks a year. Right. As soon as the, the nominees come out, then I start making phone calls and try to get, people to place, you know, tribute ads and ads in the, in the book. And um, so anyway, once the, that initial uh, five or six weeks of pandemonium is over with, and we start, we're in, we're into the print mode, you know, now we have logistics to make sure 20,000 books get to staples or crypto.com, whatever the hell it is. And, 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 uh, and make sure that all the press people have copies and blah, blah, blah. So I'm doing that kind of stuff when I'm at the Grammys. And once I do that, then I can enjoy it. Right. Which you saw me enjoying, <laughs> you know, you I get definitely had fun and things like that or not, you know, I, because I have a lamb and I can go backstage and, you know, hang out and say hi to people or whatever. But um, so there's not much work involved in, at the actual show, but it's really satisfying to see other people enjoying, you know, the fruits of our our labor when we're there. Right. And um, yeah. So anyway, the, the the caveat to that is that it's been so successful that uh, Ken, who's the owner of the company, has made me a partner in the company. So we work on. Um, a myriad of awards show. We do the Critics' Choice Awards. We do the Producers Guild Awards, Costume Designers Guild. Uh, um, what else do we do? There's there's two or three others in there. Um, so 
it's uh it's kind of turned into a little cottage industry side hustle for me that I it's great because I don't have to spend that much time at it. And you know what, my studio is at my house, so I get up at six in the morning usually and go upstairs and work. Like this morning by nine o'clock, I was done with a, a movie soundtrack, you know, jammed it out in like two or three hours, and and uh, then I got the rest of the day to do other stuff. So, do you ever get a uh the equivalent of like writer's block as a musician? Um, well, you know, I, I, I don't fancy myself much as a musician and I'm a self-taught guitar player. And there's a little kind of a funny story about what kind of, uh, put me in my place. Uh, I was, I was in New York working with, um, uh, David Coverdale and, 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 uh, um, whatchamacallit oh god speaking of writer's block <laughs> we, we all we all get it don't worry about it <laughs> working with jimmy page in new york and at one point you know we're in the studio working and he looks at me and he goes he hands me he goes hey man do you play and he goes to hand me a guitar and i just went oh no i don't play guitar <laughs> that would have been the most embarrassing day of my life right <laughs> Did not pick up my guitar for maybe five or six years after that. <laughs> so nobody would confuse asking you to do it again. Begging <laughs> for yeah, how's that? <laughs> uh, interesting. Interesting. Well, so what what challenges do you feel are next? I'm sorry. What challenges do you feel? You know, like you you have such a full background in what you do. You know. What every, drives you every day? Well, because of different people. Every day in the music business today <clears throat> is a challenge. Like yesterday, uh, the phone didn't ring. You know, the, I didn't get any emails. Something. Oh, is this is this the end? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> is this the end? Call you again. And so I go through the same thing. You know, I never. You know, it's it was it was not foreign to me. Uh, or I should say it's foreign to me now because I spent most of my life, I guess it's half now, uh, as a corporate record guy getting a paycheck every week, right? And so now I'm 100% freelance. And so those times where, you know, sometimes I'm working my butt off 16 hours a day for a, a week, um, you know, one project after another. And then all, all of a sudden, I'll, you don't work for two weeks. And you're like, okay, is this is this the end? And <laughs> And so what what that does it, it causes me usually to try to find what the next thing is that I have to try to navigate and roll into, you know. And and one of them was we talked about the the Dolby Atmos thing. One of them was actually Universal had called me th almost three years ago and said, "Look, at, we have a lot of work. If you want to build an Atmos studio, we'll take care of you." And so I said, "Cool." You know, we did it, and we were so busy for two years, but now all the um, low-lying fruit that they had in their in their vault has all been uh now on on streaming on apple um and so it's uh it's really tough to get work in the spatial audio world right now they had a mandate from apple that they had to have ten thousand uh uh spatial audio uh tracks by the end of last year and they met that goal and now everything's really slowed down so um it's not like it was. We were doing five five albums a month for almost two and a half years, which is a lot. 
Wow. So uh, th- now that vinyl come, came back, do you think that CDs will ever come back? Because I got about nine boxes. What? Wait, no, already? It never, That's they never, it? It never went away. I mean, they, they, don't, <laughs> they don't manufacture as many anymore, and they don't manufacture them on every release, but they still do put CDs out. I just finished a big Aerosmith project, uh, three months of, of uh, Aerosmith, and um, it's their 50 years of their career. And it's in every format, CD. It's not only in every format, it's it's a box set. But then within the formats, there's the Walmart version where Walmart gets their own branded version with X amount of songs on it. And then there's this version and that version. So so they, they put them out in, in every format. I have a couple of clients that still put cassettes out, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> wow. They must be very old, those clients. <laughs> But the vinyl thing is 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 huge. So everybody, every release gets vinyl now. Yeah, so, you know, and it's you know, I love is that that I hear kids that I mean, young kids are like, oh my god, have you ever heard Led Zeppelin? I don't know for you know, and it and they're in, is because of the vinyl. They get all the liner notes and the artwork, and, and you know, they're like blown away by it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What well, do you what do you um, the future of music? I mean, with new technologies, with so many artists being able to showcase their skills on social media, with, you know, the record label, the whole thing changing. How do you see things going in the future? How do artists make it in the future? And and what do you think it's going to look like? Well, I'm not that optimistic about it because... Um, um... I don't mean I don't mean that in 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 a, in a sense like the music business is going to go away. But as an artist, every day there's a hundred and fifty thousand brand new songs that get uploaded to Spotify. That's because <laughs> every other all you need to do, you, you know, we can sit there and I can go ding ding ding, record it and put it on Spotify. There's nobody there to stop me from doing it, right? So how do you find artists? How do you find music? It used to be that you needed a record deal, and within the record deal. You know, you would have this massive marketing push and manufactured product all over the world and all these things. And it was a limited amount of it was the cream of the crop. It's like if it's it's like if everybody, you know, to put it in, into in sort of sort of perspective, if everybody could take their iPhones and 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 and, and Netflix was accepting it as your movie. You know what I'm saying? The people would start losing interest in in doing that because, you know, all of a sudden there's 45 million movies on Netflix and some of them aren't worth a damn. And that's the problem with services is that there's a lot of really crappy music and it's out there competing with the really good stuff. So, um, so therefore you, you have um, less of a chance um, of having a hit record, even if you're a really good band, because you're competing with all these gazillion crappy records that are out there. I get tired of trying to find stuff, to tell you the truth. I depend on my friends to, hey, you got a playlist or something new? You know, you, you have to listen to his son's music. Of course. We'll make a deal right now, today. I, I love Joe. He's we'll put it on Luisa label. He's already the wheeler and dealer. Are you watching this? He's like, I've got, and he's the middleman. He, he's, it's you already a Samsung tablet from eight from T-Mobile. Yes. And you're paying twenty five. Hi, Susan. I love it. So another <laughs> another question I have is um about this whole. Uh, I watched recently Taylor Swift talking about how you know this these guys bought her entire library and they haven't even reached out to her. And she's like, you'd think they would, they made an investment in my music. I don't know how much they paid. It was probably obscene. Right. 
but she's like, they haven't even ever even talked to me. And I get it. She doesn't necessarily ever get the rights to her music back. But like, what do you think of that whole thing about people buying people's libraries? I get that, you know, you can enrich yourself by selling your library, but then if you really make it, you kind of want it back probably. Right. So what, what do you think of that? They still get their, they still get their songwriting royalties. Right. So by them selling their masters, um, you know, in that case, I didn't, I don't know a lot about that case, but I know it was her manager who did the deal without her knowledge, which is why she fired him. But she went out, she, she screwed everybody else because she went out and re-recorded all of her, all of her biggest. Wait, wait, wait. She, she didn't, she didn't screw. I know, I know a lot about that. You do? Enlightened. Yeah, but no, no, no. You can read about it. No, no. But, but she didn't screw anybody. In fact, the old library sells, her new recording sells. Everybody's just making money at, at, off Taylor Swift that you can imagine. What I'm trying to say is that is that because of uh, her manager uh, basically selling her catalog, uh, he bought the record company. Right. He bought he bought uh, the record company, and the record company had the masters. Okay. Now the thing is this, you know, uh, Scooter Braun. Okay, he was the he was he bought the record company from, I don't know, Big Hit. No, it wasn't Big Hit. Something like that. Big Machine. A, a big Machine. A big Machine. And uh, she got like three hundred and twenty-five million dollars. Okay, Big Machine got about four hundred four hundred fifty million dollars. So she was just pissed off because, you know, like um, nobody came to her and said, hey, do you want to buy these back or what? Well, you know, you know, you know, the famous story about Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. What's that? And the Beatles and the Beatles library. Uh, OK, it's a whole other story, but try that one on. <laughs> That's way bigger than the Taylor Swift. Yeah. Uh, fiasco. But but. Um, uh you don't have to worry about Taylor Smith. <laughs> and, and the, you know, what happened with the Scooter Braun and all of that, he sold it to the Disney people, you know, the family, the Disney family people. And the point is that all her music sells in every format she recorded. It goes to the top, you know, whatever the top 50, the top 100, whatever it is today, top 10. It's a very unusual set of circumstances. I can tell you this. Scooter Braun is not in the best shape when it comes to Taylor Swift. That's for sure. <laughs> I yeah. want to go back to talking about Mr. Donnelly because that is. Yeah. That is that's way more fun. Than, way more fun than Taylor Swift. Way more fun. Sure. He's way more entertaining to me. Go ahead. <laughs> David, besides David Geffen, who are your biggest mentors in the industry and what and why? Like, what did they teach you? Um, you know, in a way, the, the, I, in a way my dad was, but, you know, through my journey with my dad, you know, working for him and then, and then him, uh, he and I working together. And then at one point he was working for me at a record company, you know, so, but I have to, of course, you know, he was a fantastic mentor because of the opportunities I got. Right. And he, and he quietly taught me things. Um, you know, I really was a self-made person in 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 a lot of respects. I I always, you know, what I loved when when I was at um, uh, when I was at Geffen, I would mentor kids from SC all the time, 
And they'd always had the same thing. They called me up. Hey, can we come? I'm in the music thing. Can I come and talk? Yeah, yeah, yeah come on in. And they would always say, the first thing is like, hey, when can I be an A&R guy? And I said, after you spend a few years in the mailroom. They all never <laughs> want to. But it's true, you know. It, it, and my 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 one thing to them was always, listen, mouth shut, ears open. Absorb, suck it all in like a sponge. Because that's how you're going to get to your next level. And that's one really- the things we were right. talking about earlier is your concept of like your- MO, do not say no. So I, I want to hear about that because I think that's very important. Yeah. One thing I, I learned early on is that is that uh um you know for you to be successful in anything, people have to have confidence in you. And to have confidence in you, um, and, and it's really it's still what I'm gonna tell you is still my uh sort of um uh it, it it's kind of my philosophy today. So I told my guys that, that worked for me, never say no. When I went to a job interview, like uh, one record company who uh, pressing plant had been in business for over 40 years. They always farmed out a part of their manufacturing process because it was just too expensive to get into it. And they called me one day, I was working for Electra records and they said, Hey, we want to, uh, we want to build a, a, a matrix plating plant, which is, I'm not going to go into the minutia of that, but it's, it's very difficult process. It's where you take the lacquers, the, 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 uh, that they cut in the mastering studio that eventually become the metal parts to manufacture vinyl. They farmed that process out. So it's a dangerous process. There's chemicals, cyanide, horrible stuff that you have to deal with. So the owner of this company says, yeah, we're spending like 20 grand a month doing this on the outside. I said, I can do that. And I'm like, sure, what did I just say, right? So I go there and he won't spend any money up on the roof of their building. He had 30, 40 year old pieces of stuff that's been rained on, completely destroyed. And I took all that stuff and I had everything remanufactured. And and in two months I had him up and operating. And, uh, and I, and I just utilized my, I utilized my dad's friends, the old timers. I said, how do I do this? How do I mix this chemical? How do I, right. And they didn't know that. I just said, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I could do that. But, and, and so that kind of gave me the confidence the rest of my life going forward to never say no to people because I, I had enough resources out there that I always wanted to be when I left Geffen in 97 and opened my studio my philosophy was one-stop shop. Anybody that calls, if Disney calls and says, hey, we need a master duplicated. If I don't do it, tell them we do it and I'll find somebody to do it. And so that's really how I made a name for myself. And even today on uh, on, on last Friday, Thursday, I get a call from, from Universal uh, on a project and they go, hey, we need the, we need this stuff. Uh, can you can you listen to some some files and, and QC them? It was like three three or four things. And uh, I got, and I don't even know what to charge you. And it took me five minutes. They sent me a thousand bucks, you know, and it's, and it's, I just never say no. They know that I, they can come to me with anything, with anything, and I will find a solution for it. And that was my job at Geffen. I was a utility executive. I started all these different departments. If a record ran out of money, I'd go in and finish it myself. Right. If they didn't have enough money to finish mixing it, I'd go in the studio and I would finish mixing it and we put it out. I did all the radio edits. I did 
all that kind of stuff. And and it was all just uh, trial and error. I, I go to going back. You asked about a mentor. My, my I do have a mentor. And my mentor is, uh, he just had his 90, I don't think 93rd birthday. His name was Lee Hirschberg. And he taught me everything I know about working with tape. And he was the, he was our head engineer at Warner Brothers. And he actually won a Grammy for Strangers in the Night, Frank Sinatra. And he was Frank's engineer forever. And as well as he, he recorded the Doobie Brothers and all, I mean, just all these you know, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, all these incredible great bands that that are legendary, you know, that are that are um, legacy bands. Um, and so I would stay after work in my regular job at Warner Brothers and go down to the studio. And then he'd like, you want to learn to do this? And yeah, he says, all right, well, I'm going home. Here's a stack of tape. And he, I would I would take and, you know, have to peel the old paper leaders off in between songs and then clean it with Freon. And I'm like, Oh, you know, I don't know if I was really liking this or not. But then when the end result was that, you know, we started putting out re-releasing all these old masters and things. And I was part of that. It, it was, it was amazing. And, and I just, uh, I, I saw him about, I don't know, a month ago, I took him out for his 93rd birthday and it, he's, well, he's like my dad. He doesn't talk about it. It was, it was, his his best friend who was who worked with me, who's known him his whole life. We had no idea. He told us last year that he won a Grammy for Stranger Than Night. No, he doesn't talk about any of this stuff. If you look at old Frank Sinatra books and pictures of him in the studio, there's my friend Lee right there in the console. You know, he has the, his stories. You think my stories are crazy? His stories about the days with Frank. Frank called him. <laughs> You know, they go down there and it'd just be total debauchery. <laughs> you know, FK is there and all, you know, whatever is all. This <laughs> so, um, so Lee Hirschberg, I think, is the one guy who I think made the biggest impact on my latter part of my career, for sure. That's made- awesome. Wow. Man. So you're you're. Just say yes to everything, or rather, don't say no to anything. <laughs> I bet that didn't apply when you were on tour and you were near the bus or the hotels of the bands. In what? In what? <laughs> You're oh. going to do everything they tell you, right? <laughs> I just caught on to that. <laughs> I can't say no. It's my philosophy. Smart. Right this way. <laughs> And into an art director friend of mine a couple of years ago. And she said, Hey, you know what I found? I go, what? She goes, I found Polaroids of you in bed with Steven Tyler and two girls at a hotel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen so much and it's just, it's part of the business. (laughs) I love how Joe is an Absolutely loving this part of it. <laughs> yeah, really. Oh man! In the studio, <laughs> I did some special favors by hopping a plane and taking a red eye out and getting a record out. And the thanks I got from the band was they would send up, you know, they would try to send. Well, they would send, but I would refuse them. They would send porn. <laughs> I'm like, no. no. <laughs> and they looked at you and said, "What does this guy need?" Okay, let's send him. <laughs> So yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, so what's you, next? Do you have a um, well, your, 
you don't listen to the music as much. You listen through the music. But do you have a favorite type of music? Something. What is your who are your favorite artists or what is your favorite genre? I I don't really have one. I like I like everything at certain times. Right. Um, to go, I, I want to go real, real rewind a little bit on something we were talking about uh, before about you know people that hang in the business and, and and keep reinventing themselves and are there. There's a guy who was a super famous AR guy who made millions. At one point, he had a thoroughbred farm in 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 in, uh, in Virginia and a house in Malibu. It got burned down, but whatever. Anyway, he had so much money, uh, and he's super famous. And he's selling Hyundai's now. He's selling Hyundai's. That's and, like, the, and the lesson, and the lesson in that is what? Invent yourself. Oh, okay. Punches the business as we at, at at the time that he had his success, the business has changed and changed and changed. He didn't change with it, right? And so he found himself out, and that's that's what he does now. And maybe he's happy. Oh, I'm sure he, well, I don't know. I few people have, have, have uh, told me that he's, you know, really trying hard to get back in the business um, because I, yeah, I, what business is he going to get back to? Yeah. <laughs> well, they but do he, have a 10 year warranty. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he could get a discount for us. <laughs> yeah, sure. Anyway, uh, you know, I don't know this fellow here. What, what, what is your name? With the iPhone 5 right under him. Louisa? Yeah, I, I think I, I don't, might be I, my friend Kim. Tim? Kim might be the iPhone 5. I know Tracy. And uh, I No, this is this good-looking older guy, right? Uh, 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 right here. Okay. I'm not seeing a, other than you being the fabulous one. And <laughs> I see Mark. Older, older guy. <laughs> I don't oh, this, see the one who told us about his son. Oh, are you talking about Mark? Yeah, Mark. I, I don't I, I don't know Mark. I'm the older guy. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that. Mark. Mark, yeah. you ask great questions, Mark. Well, right? what is it that you what is it that you do? You know, thank you for asking. I the way the reason I ask great questions is because I was lucky enough at one time to have been there at the beginning of the action sports world, like helped start the X Games, and I ran what became the Pro Tour for skateboarding, BMX, freestyle moto. These guys were a bunch of kids, and I'm interviewing them on TV. Try to make a 16 year old who doesn't want to be on TV sound interesting. I got really good at asking questions. So <laughs> what we actually do is we'd turn the cameras on and the camera guy would pretend he was still getting ready. And I'd ask like the real question, the thing that I'd get the real awesome reaction from. Right. And then and they'd roll and they'd catch that answer. And then we would get formal and they'd stiffen up and they'd give their bullshit answer. But we'd use the the authentic stuff. So, yeah. yeah. You know, very similar in, in recording. Um, there's a, a it, you know, it, it's kind of a, a, a unwritten rule that you always roll tape because you don't know what you're going to get. Right. So they go out to the band will go out and rehearse a couple of times before we take, you know, take a take. But you're recording everything. And, and so many times we end up using the guitar solo from the from the run through or the vocal from the run through, because when they're not thinking about it, they just think that they're practicing. They do sometimes their best performance. Right. That's it, kind of why I love this. Like I, 
I used to have all these conversations from behind the chair and I always wished they were recorded because some of the most magical things would come up in our conversations. And I thought, how cool would it be if it was recorded and people got to hear these conversations? And it's really why this came about because I thought there's so many incredible things like your dad's story, you know, Mm -hmm. now the world gets to hear your dad's story. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's and how it impacted your career and it impacted you and becoming who you are because of that story. And if these things are not shared and recorded, the world has no idea. And how many people have been recording these sessions and how fascinating everybody's had a paper route. I love finding the common denominators and I love having my 17 year old son on here. I can't tell you how many times, by the way, David, you don't know this. I've enrolled you to t- help him learn how to play the guitar. So <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be quite fun having you here playing guitar with Connor. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> you totally know about that. <laughs> so I, that's kind of why I love this is the, you know, there's areas in music. It, you know, Mark, Mark and Joe happen to know a ton more than me. And I love the fact that you guys have been asking remarkable questions through the through the session. And I I love having everybody on because the energy of everyone in here has created um, an incredible amount of answers from David. By the way, my friend Yoko is in here and she's from Japan. So we get to say hello to her too. Oh. I love uh, the fact that people can hop in from every part of the world. And hello, Corinne. Hi, Tracy. And I'm assuming iPhone 5 is... Kim, I'm not positive. And hi, Brian. Um, Nyoko, do you want to ask any questions from David Donnelly? Yeah, hi. Um, I have a question. I have uh, my profession is a movement posture coach. And at the same time, I have a dancer background. Then now I'm doing art producer in Kyoto, Japan. So always, I think that even the music, dance, performance, entertainment, I have bad, bad, bad habitual thought. Art cannot be business. So now I'm making money from my teaching and then use all the money to do my art production, hire people. So did you have that kind of a moment or I'm sorry, I don't know your whole history, but uh, a lot of people yanking around that area, I assume. So do you have any answer for that? I think that, you know, first of all, you know, you do art because you love it. And if you can make a living from it, you know, that's fantastic. And and I appreciate, you know, what you do. I was I was married to a, a, a dancer a professional dancer and I was in the dance world for a long time. And so I know how, what a difficult, difficult, you know, career that is. Right. And um, so, but everybody in, in that world um, I found most of them made, that was, that was their business and their art. Right. And they were able to, to create their own industry out of it. A friend of mine who, who is a, world famous dance teacher um, taught many of the stars in Hollywood how to, you know, dance and choreographed lots of movies and things like that. And he's very old. He's pretty old now. Um, he started back uh, in, in the, um, in the, in the eighties 
doing these dance convention tours around the country, about the U.S., it became a multi, 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 multi million dollar deal touring uh, 35, 40 weeks a year with the best choreographers in the United States and thousands of kids paying thousands of dollars to go for to a hotel for a weekend and learn from these people. So he took what was really just a creative endeavor for him and made it into a huge business, you know, and, and, and that inspired me to do the same thing with, a, a, I used to produce his music for him with, a, I had a partner who is deceased now. And he, we took that same, same um, theory of that people will uh, come in masses if you give them something, right? Something special. So my friend Vic, booked a a, a, a a classroom up in San Francisco and advertised in the local. He was an incredible guitar teacher. And um, once, a, once a month, all of a sudden, all these kids were showing up to just learn how to play guitar in a classroom from him just as a master class, right? And um, so now cut to the chase. I hadn't talked to him in a long time and I'm on vacation and I turn on CNN and CNN International comes on. And I'm and they're doing a story on on uh, like uh, twenty thousand Chinese kids in an arena learning how to play American rock guitar. Who knows in the middle of it? My friend Vic, he's the one teaching twenty thousand Chinese kids how to play guitar. And so he took once again his creative thing and made it into a business. And um, so you know, I think that that yeah. It, now more than ever because the internet and everything, it, it, it it's it's easier to accomplish that. Was that a good answer? Yes, very good answer. Because now I said, wow, I play two ways most. When you said 20,000 kids in the arena, it's not 20 students in a studio. So I was like, okay, just think big, period. So <laughs> <laughs> all possible. Thank Amazing. You. Thank you, Nyoko, for getting the music for this, for this dance convention circuit. We would have never gotten the idea to take that. And, and see if we can, instead of dancers, what about a couple guitar players going to a, you know, a ballroom somewhere and running it out and having a bunch of kids show up to learn how to play this. And then all of a sudden that was successful and he took it to a whole nother level. And um, uh, so it, you know, it, it's it, creative uh, artistic businesses can, uh, um, even if it's just your passion, can certainly become a, a career and a big business, you know, there's there's no reason why the two can't be married right louisa i love it i you know i i love what neoko said is like think big and and you created that and and she it landed for her because sometimes we share things and what someone hears is fascinating and i love the fact that she saw the grand part of that in your answer mm hmm Thank you, Nyoko, for, uh, and, and I truly feel like every time someone else asks a question, a new opening shows up, right? Like, and I love your answer to that because it has all of us leaving with, hmm, am I playing big enough in my life? And where can I expand? And where can I sh shift and pivot? And where can I continue saying yes? So... Tracy, would you like to ask a question? You're on mute, my darling. 
teu amigo. Oh, there it is. Hi. There you are. Oh, sorry. Thank you. I don't know. I'm a techno dinosaur. I don't know how to work the phone. I just loved it. I feel so uh, moved, touched, and inspired. And um, I just, I especially love the part about saying, yes, I did that my whole career. And I mean, if they asked me to mop the floor, I did it. And it just opened doors everywhere I did that. And I love the whole idea of playing big and the humility thing. When, when you said, I just acknowledged the guy that you partnered with the Grammy. I forgot his name. Was it Alan? Parsons, yes. Yeah. Alan Parsons. Yeah. When you said that I got choked up in tears, I was running back and forth because my mom has gout and I was taking ice to her house. So I was in the car and I'm just trying to listen But I literally pulled the car over and sobbed for a minute because there are so few people in the universe that just can be in that moment, throw the piece of paper away and let their heart flow with acknowledgement for another out of pure gratitude. And the contribution you were to him seeing that, I, I bet that made his year. Oh, his career. Yeah, I mean. You're just a fabulous human being. Produced one of the greatest albums in the history of music, which is Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. And he didn't win a Grammy for that, right? So he, he's been in there swinging and punching for all these years, and he's 70-something years old, and he finally won. Right? Yes. Super special moment. I didn't want to take that away from him, you know? So You're awesome. You're just awesome. Oh, thank but that, you. But you, that's the thing. It's that, you know you giving it to him was you receiving it at the same time you know the giving is in the receiving the receiving is in the giving like that's the part that people are missing is when we are generous and we yeah. are highlighting someone else we are receiving we it's it's just this different receiving but it's just as beautiful to share something else with, with you guys along those lines which was pretty cool so you know he wasn't he wasn't there he wasn't able to go to the grammys so um about six months later th it takes a long time there's one guy that actually makes the grammys he makes them all by hand so they give out 800 it takes him like six seven eight months to make all these things right <laughs> um alan's on tour and they were playing here in los angeles at um at a venue and uh ken rose my friend who took me to the grammys who was alan's friend who introduced us uh to each other um we decided you know what let's surprise alan on stage in the middle of his concert and we'll borrow a grammy from somebody because i hadn't gotten mine yet so we called a friend of our casey casey porter who won for uh, santana's uh, supernatural album we borrowed his grammy and in the middle of them playing ken and i go on stage with a with a plaque and a grammy and we stopped the concert And we handed it to Alan and the place went crazy. And he was so thrilled. He, first of all, he's like, what are you, what are you doing on stage? Why, why are you guys here? <laughs> we stopped and Ken has a big voice and he got up there and he announced that Alan wasn't able to make the Grammy. So we want to present him with one in front of an audience. And it was an amazing moment. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you.
You're welcome. Now y'all know why I started off with what a remarkable man that he is, right? Like, yes, what a absolutely remarkable man he is. Thank and you. I get the pleasure of hanging out with him all the time. Louisa's <laughs> <laughs> got the best friends. Really. I really do. <laughs> I really do. And and it was so wild because I met him at the salon and we were chatting about people we know and we kind of had a whole bunch of friends in common and we ended up being besties. And I'm like, I seriously love this man. So I, it, it's just amazing when you get to know him i'm like he's so spectacular we've got to have him on here and and i was a hundred percent right wasn't i Absolutely. yes yes uh, i don't know about that <laughs> I, very, very cool. I, I i like no i know my amazing people and yes i was like totally on with this one so i am so grateful everyone has been here and i'm so grateful thank you david donnelly for truly not only being my bestie being willing to do this. I yes. Thank you. Very enjoyable. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope thank to join. Thank you. Thank you. Have thank a you. beautiful night, y'all. Okay, bye. bye.